Oh, hello, donkeys. It is uh, Wednesday, the 30th of August, 2017. And this is the promotional My Practice live chat. My name is Luke Thomas. I am the host of this podcast here, uh, as you can see, in New Digs. I'm in New York City. I'm at the upstairs sort of cubicle area of Sirius XM here in Midtown. I'm here because I had to do an interview with Mike Tyson today, which was not great. Um, and then uh, I'm doing my live chat and then my radio show and then my show tomorrow. Uh, I'm hosting the MMA Beat tomorrow, so there's a lot going on. I had to come and stay the night. But uh, right now it's time for the live chat. We'll go about 90 minutes as we normally do. Best place to get your questions in is where this window is embedded on MMAfighting.com in the comment section there. And the comments that turn green get priority without exclusivity. Pretty easy to know what we're going to talk about, right? It's going to be Mayweather versus McGregor, I, I suspect, is the predominant amount of discussion points. I'm sure there might be some John Jones in there. There might be some UFC Rotterdam in there. There might be some stuff in between all of that. And uh, whatever it is, again, those questions on MMAfighting.com. That's the best place to get it. I've got a pair of trash headphones here. I, I literally don't even know what brand these are. I had to buy them in the airport because my other one's broke. So I have terrible, terrible headphones. But I guess look at the job done. You'll see my uh, shrill harpy of a producer walk in and out occasionally. But don't mind her because I certainly don't. All right. I'm teasing. Uh, all right. Let's go. Oh, and by the way, today's show brought to you by Diet Mountain Dew because I am in desperate need of caffeine and I've already had three cups of coffee, which I'm sure is healthy. I mean, at this point, if I'm drinking three cups of coffee, why not four? I guess just so I can get something sweeter. I don't know. In any case, I'm tired, but neither here nor there. All right. Let us get to these questions. By the way, if you're asking about the Mike Tyson interview and why it wasn't great, um, I'm told he had back surgery recently and is medicated, and it certainly seemed that way. He did not, I don't know how to say this exactly except delicately, but all there. Um, and someone was saying to me, well, he's not a smart guy. Some of my hater-ass friends are like, well, no, that's not what, first of all, I think he's a lot more typically introspective that people give him credit for it, but that's not what it is. He seemed sedated. I don't know how else to say it. Um, I'll either get the audio and or the video up when I can. It'll air at 5 p.m. today on my channel. So it was a little, it was a little disappointing, um, but I hope he's okay. I don't know. I don't know how else to say it, you know? Um, yeah. Okay. First question. Wow. Got nothing to do with anything I mentioned before. All right. Uh, Woodley. Look, what is the secret to beating Woodley now? Since losing to former contender Rory McDonald, Woodley has successfully dealt with a brawler in Lawler, an elusive karate fighter in Thompson, and a BJJ master in Maya, no doubt picking up more attributes and experience along the way. Woodley is a powerful, fast, and dangerous counterpuncher with an amazing takedown defense and the ability to do just enough to get the job done. So I'm curious as to your take on the attributes required to beat Woodley, i.e. what are Woodley's essential weaknesses, the game plan that should be followed, and the potential fighters on the roster, if any, who can get the job done against Woodley. Uh, any idea who his next fight will be against? That part, I don't know. Um, interesting. Well, without having reviewed current evidence, I don't really know how exactly how to... I mean, I'd be better off if I had reviewed some of his more recent film, and I have not gone back and watched that Rory McDonald fight. 
in a while where that was one of the scenarios where Woodley typically likes to back up against the fence and then that he finds a way to put that on his terms. We talked about it with Dominic Cruz, at least noted during the Wonder Boy Thompson fight that enabled Woodley to set range. And then I noted during the Demi and Maya fight or afterwards on my Monday morning analyst that it had also enabled him to, uh, uh, he, he, he was able to reduce the effectiveness of the second effort on his takedowns as a consequence. So it's somebody who is going to have success, I think, at range striking with him. Because you're right, taking him down is going to be difficult. Uh, working in close might be a bit of an issue uh, and a bit of a, you know, a draining scenario. But I wonder if somebody has like a really good jab, real good boxing at range. Again, I need to go back and watch that Rory McDonald fight. It's a great question, but it's one I'm not really prepared for. Um, some, of these are, some of these spontaneous questions are a little harder to answer than others. Um, but I, I think there's sort of the more interesting point here is what, what skills did he pick up along the way? One of the interesting things that's going to be to see about Woodley, no matter who he fights next, is going to be whether or not those camps being so specific made him better to fight those challenges or made him better generally. Now, there's no denying that in practicing that takedown defense and in getting used to range and finding a way to figure out very difficult guys, you're probably going to get better generally. But I'm curious to see how much of that transfers over. To be clear, I'm not declaring that it won't or that it will. In fact, I suspect there will be some. Um, but the question is how much. He is also a little bit older. I believe he's 35, 36. So there's a question about I mean, he, why he is incredibly athletic. Maybe a question about how much longer he'll be uh, athletically ahead of his peers. Um, but it just seems to me you kind of know what he's going to do. He's going to back up against the fence. How do you make him pay for it at range? So if you can, if you can mix up ranges in the middle of combinations, starting with kicks, push kicks, and then launching into punches, being able to separate so he can't take you down, uh, working to the body, wearing him down. You have to really sort of be uh, wary of – I mean, if you got to stay outside the punching range the majority of the time, because as long as he can connect on a big, fast, explosive strike uh, with, with his fists, he could do a lot. He doesn't do a lot. Leg kicks might be another one as well, really breaking him down like that. You risk, of course, um, the takedown, but if you can sort of set him up other ways with it, right, kind of almost like a – Justin Gaethje, where you're going to the head, head, body, head, 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 body, head, and then and then you whip in the leg kick at the very end in close range, which allows you to get that sprawl where you need to. Uh, there's that as well. So um, it'll be interesting to see. I don't know who that person's going to be. I don't know if it's George St. Pierre, who you know is typically risk-averse, and you know he had trouble taking Johnny Hendricks down for whatever that was worth back then. So it'll be interesting to see. It'll be very, very interesting to see because Woodley's a handful. Uh, maybe Robbie Lawler can box with him at range, you know, but that didn't work so well for him last time. But that last time, going off the Condit fight, you know, God only knows what kind of state he was in. So it says, I think a fighter like Jorge Masvidal has a great shot of beating Woodley. Yep. His striking acumen is better than Woodley's, and he has enough grappling to be dangerous. Yeah, that's a pretty decent call. Someone says the biggest weakness of Woodley isn't a physical or technical attribute. It's this habit of taking off and giving rounds to his opponents. That's another interesting call. Okay. And then finally we get to the Maymac stuff. All right. What can McGregor take from the Mayweather fight and camp back into MMA? I think the consensus from Saturday night is that Conor McGregor is a better pure boxer than we initially thought. However, questions over his cardio have been raised again, even though this was a 12-round bout. There is also the realization that a hand-up, relentless pressure style 
gives him problems in pure boxing. My question is, out of all the positive elements of Saturday night, what can Conor McGregor take back with him to MMA? And out of the weaknesses exposed, what can his future UFC opponents take from that as a guide to beat him in MMA? Let's start with the second part first, uh, which is his weaknesses. We'll get to his strengths, I promise. But let's start with his weaknesses. What can his future UFC opponents take from that as a guide to beat him in MMA? You know what's, you know what's really funny? I, I've been on the wrong end of Conor McGregor predictions a number of times, but I did pick him to beat Eddie Alvarez. But I sort of thought it would be close. And in the end, it really wasn't close. Um, but the interesting part about that is one of my presumptions was that uh, Eddie will wrestle him first. Eddie was on my show in the lead up to that fight, and he had mentioned that, you know, you can't wrestle the entire fight. If it's a 25-minute fight, you can maybe wrestle 10 to 15 minutes and then no more. And after that, you really got to get you got to get to work uh, with striking. And I thought that that was going to be something of a blueprint. Just go out there and wrestle him. Even if you don't get the takedown, make him underhook, make him wrestle, make him separate, stay in his face, stay on him, find a way to clinch, fight inside, do something, because that range will tear you to pieces. And he didn't do that, of course, and he lost. And it was, this was interesting to me. I keep I, I, I keep saying to fighters, like, you know, if you're going to fight Conor McGregor, and not specifically fighters, but like in this general way, if you're going to fight McGregor, you, you cannot strike with him early, right? You cannot strike with him early. Chances are you're going to be outmatched. Now, you can't go there and do absolutely no striking, but you should not anticipate exchanging with him for any prolonged period of time. Here's the funny part about that. Mayweather seems to have got that better than anybody. Mayweather understood that better than anybody. Now, you can't take rounds off in MMA like Mayweather did. But just think about this. Even Mayweather, Mayweather didn't really strike with Connor in the first three rounds. Even Mayweather was at range, looking, reading. I'm not exchanging with this fool. <laughs> Switching stances, long. Jab was pretty good. His left-hand counter, that uppercut, was very, I mean, that might be his best punch of the whole fight. Very nice. Quick, reactive, accurate. I mean, it was a little bit off. It hit his chest and then came up. But it it definitely, it knocked his head back. I mean, that didn't land idly. Just think about that for a second. This guy comes from MMA, right, where everyone is supposed to know him better. And then goes to boxing. And even Mayweather is smart enough to be like, I'm not striking with this fool early. No chance. No chance, Lance. Now, he had the luxury of not doing a whole lot, which fighters in MMA don't. But I'm just saying, isn't that hilarious? That, like, why are you, Mr. MMA fighter, striking with Conor McGregor early when not even Floyd Mayweather wants to do that in boxing? It just makes no sense. He is, Conor McGregor, an absolute terror. Terror at the beginning of fights. Terror. And Floyd Mayweather had enough sense to be like, mm, I don't know what these fools are doing. Striking with him early, I'm not playing that game. Now, yes, was part of that strategic? Yes. Was part of that maybe a little bit of his rust from being off and not sparring? Yes. Um, a lot of that was directly intentional. But Paulie Malinaji on the broadcast admitted the guy is hard to fight at first. It takes you a round or two or maybe more to figure out exactly where your openings are and what he's doing. It's, it's awkward. And I think that, yes... Mayweather intended to take off some of those early rounds, but
but not the to the extent that he did. Do I think he was going to throw? Did, did he think going in, I'm going to throw four to six punches around? I sincerely doubt that. Even Mayweather said after the fact that he was kind of shocked by McGregor. So this is my point. It's like, what can you take from this? Number one, if Floyd Mayweather does not spend the early portion of a fight striking with Conor McGregor, what are you doing? Do not do that. Now, you cannot take rounds off, but if you consider the fight was about nine rounds and some change, and he took off took off the first three rounds, or you know, you use it strictly to, to gather data about Conor. So that means for the first third of a fight, he's not really doing a whole lot. I don't think MMA fighters have that luxury here, but here's what I think you can do. Get on them. Takedowns. Now, you have to weigh yourself out in the process of doing that, but this is my point. I do think Connor is right. He has a very high beginning. There's a significant drop-off, and then there's a return uh, that he eventually finds himself. We saw that in the Diaz fight, and even Malinaji himself said that's what happened in the 12 rounds. Connor thought he would find that again a little bit later on. Why he has that dip, we could talk about it a little bit later. All I'm pointing out to you is, if you can get him from here to here, I'm not saying this is some automatically very easy thing to do, but I guess what I'm also saying is uh, it's essential to winning. It's essential to winning. The best defensive fighter of this generation has enough sense to not risk it uh, in those early portions of the round. So what on earth makes you think you should? That's the first thing I think in terms of a weakness that he has to address. Uh, or actually, his opponents that I need to adhere to. In terms of the weaknesses, it's that it's that drop off. Again, um, is there evidence to believe he has an eventual rebound? Yes. Uh, is there evidence to believe this is potentially correctable? Certainly, I'm in no position to say it's not correctable. As for the exact cause of it, is it psychological? Is it a efficiency issue? Part of it, I do think it might it might might be an efficiency issue because one of the things he likes to do in both MMA and boxing is you know what I mean. He'll stand here and he even said, "I want to be creative," and he'll go pop pop, and he'll just these are small shots. Uh, and again, Malinash, you noted in the broadcast, they're not really landing. They're not intending to land. They're just intending to keep you shelled where he's going to pop, pop, maybe hits the ribs a little bit, comes over with a hook, but he's not like driving shots. What he's doing is McGregor likes to just move his hands and see if he can play whack-a-mole with you where you leave just enough of one big opening. And once it's there, then he drives the shot, right? A shot or two. Uh, but I think that's really taxing, ultimately. Even if these shots that are set up are very light and easy, I, I just don't think his style is necessarily conducive to volume, is the first part. Whether there's some other mechanical issues in the way which he throws and conducts himself in the first part of fights, I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't know how correctable that is. But here's what I do know. If, even if there is a rebound, I think even his strongest supporters have to admit there is a significant drop-off somewhere towards the middle of a fight that he always experiences you know by round six he's not fighting like he is in round one there's a there's a dramatic drop off and you know most fighters aren't fighting in round six the way they're fighting around one but there's not that much of a gap there's not that much he has a problem with that and as to the exact nature of it i don't know so this is my point you look at what floyd mayweather does you look at the body of evidence now that suggests that yes there might be a rebound at the very back end but in the middle there's a drop off make him work Stay out of trouble, do not strike, not much anyway, and drive him to the point of fatigue where he becomes a much more manageable task at that point. I, I cannot, I mean, if there is any lesson from the Mayweather fight, it's that an experienced, credentialed striker, not in the totality of the striking sense, but in that boxing sense, 
an experienced ring veteran like that had enough wherewithal to not go out there and bang with him early. Banged with him late when it was on his terms, not early. Now, in terms of the strengths, number one, acknowledging that up front, he is very difficult to deal with, Conor McGregor. Um, let's see. What could he take back in terms of skills? Number one, I think this entire experience from being a promoter fighter, um, I think will put him at ease about certain responsibilities. I, I know that may not, he, this is not a guy that's ever been intimidated by the circumstances, but I think just nevertheless is something to consider. But in terms of actual in-fight stuff, I think his footwork's going to get a little bit tighter. Uh, I think his distance management is going to be a lot more complicated or, you know, potentially could be a lot more confusing for opponents. You know, we've noted that he uses push kicks, spin kicks, uh, to push people to certain directions and to back them up. He showed a tremendous jab. Was it a piston jab, you know, like a Golovkin jab? Not necessarily. Uh, not that it was lazy necessarily either, but um, but it did good work in setting up attacks with the left. It did good work in, again, staying busy. It did good work with what a jab is essentially supposed to do. Uh, that is not something he ever really showed them. I mean, he didn't have much of a jab. A little bit of a hand up, right? He would do this number. And he might throw one and then bring the left behind it, but there wasn't a very sophisticated use of it because the other things the jab would normally do, he used other things to do that. Those got taken away. He had to develop this, and he did, to an extent anyway. So I think if he can take that back, I'm not saying go away from the spin kicks. I'm not saying go away from the push kicks, but now begin to seamlessly incorporate this new jab in different scenarios and see what that can do for you. That would be interesting. I thought his footwork got a lot better, tight pivots, um, you know, uh, fleet of foot getting behind, uh, Floyd Mayweather on a number of occasions. Uh, that was interesting as well. So, you know, these he, he really developed some other core fundamentals there in the process. And, you know, you look, you saw his anticipatory skills. You know, one of the things that, you know, Alan Jovan, one of the sort of, who's a good fighter, one of the knocks on him has been, he just doesn't have great anticipatory skills when someone can explode with a power shot. He just kind of stands there and, and gets hit. Uh, and then if he stays in range or gets backed up against the fence where he can't, control the range anymore is a problem. McGregor uh, has superb, superb anticipatory skills. To catch a guy who's 20 pounds less than you, who, yes, is older, significantly older, um, and not the same version of a prime self that he once was, but is still very quick, very has very good timing himself, and you catch him clean early or you know, pretty damn close to clean, you know, he obviously, it, it looked to me early like there wasn't a, very much of a speed differential. Certainly not in terms of that reactive counter-striking that he brought out of himself or that Mayweather may potentially brought out of him. So, you know, I think if he can work on these cardio issues and work on his early part of the, of a, uh, you know, fight's management, man, he's going to be a handful because he already had all of these amazing skills. He already had all of these things he could do so well. Uh, and now he's potentially, I mean, we'll see how well he can retrofit them into his game. But that jab to me looked pretty damn impressive. And the things we knew about his anticipatory skill striking, they were only magnified in the sport. And his footwork got better. There's a lot, man. That's not nothing. A good jab, man. George St. Pierre beat Josh Koscheck with a good jab, defending his title in Montreal, you know? That's that's that is not a small thing. A good jab is hard to come by. And if he can bring that around, boy, he's gonna do a lot. I think he really will. I think it's uh, that was the big thing for me that I noticed with this, in addition to sort of other cl the cleanliness of certain angles and movement. And again, that footwork that I thought was just, just really early, very fleet of foot.
Let's see. One says, Connor, this is them writing, not me. Connor simply does not have elite cardio. I'm not disputing that he trains hard. There's no doubt he trains hard. But truly elite cardio is simply not part of his skill set. That is something Diaz should definitely take advantage of if they make the trilogy. He isn't as big a puncher as Connor, but similar to what Floyd did in the ring, you should make Connor work hard for 15 minutes and then really start to box him up as he starts to reach that point of exhaustion. Floyd was the smaller man, past his prime, and never known as a power puncher, and yet he got the finish in uh, his first finish in years this weekend. I think that tells us a lot. I'd say that's pretty fair. I'd say it's pretty fair. Uh, Someone says, here's what we learned about Conor McGregor. One, he is amazing at creating angles and getting behind his opponent. True. Uh, two, I think he was exposed for his inability, they put it as two different words, to fight on the inside. Like Luke said on the MMA analysis show, Conor has more of a European style like that. And, uh, and his punches aren't as linear. He's most effective when he hits you at the end of a punch at distance. True. Both Diaz and Floyd were able to walk him down and make him fight from a closer range. I think he could work on backing up at angles and not in a straight line. For boxing, he could work on uppercuts and body head combos and spinning his opponent when they come to him. In MMA, he could work on knees, elbows, sweeps in the clinch, and again, spinning his opponent when they come close to him. I also think it would be kind of interesting to see Connor, especially against Nate Diaz, who has porous takedown defense, it would be kind of interesting to see if they fight a third time, if he can develop a takedown. Right? You're getting this guy's coming at you. Well, that presents an offensive opportunity, does it? And if you're looking to rest, take him down. Now, Diaz's guard is not to be trifled with, and if you're tired, that could be a problem. So there are there are challenges no matter what. I'm merely saying um, it's, if, if, if catching your breath is something you want to do, working on and developing a guard, you know, on top guard defense uh, with Dylan Danis and Savage Ground and Pound, because um, you know he hits hard, that could be something. That could be something to, to try. You know, Diaz's guard is amazing, but no guard is, is impenetrable. Maybe even passing simply to half could be something as well. Just, just sort of finding a moment there. Um, and just catching your breath a little bit. Catching your breath a little bit. Catching your breath a little bit. If you can work on it when guys are coming at you, that it, it, there is an opportunity there. All, all these things carry risk no matter what you do, but you get the idea. Let's see. For MMA, uh, I'd say McGregor's opponents could try to focus on grappling and body work. Yeah. If I'm an opponent of McGregor's, I'm going to the body constantly until he resolves this issue. I don't see how you don't. All right. McGregor Diaz and defeat. After the Mayweather bout, I've seen some commentary from the MMA media about how McGregor will be fine because he rebounded from the Diaz loss. In that case, though, while McGregor seemed accepting and contemplative in the press conference after the match, he also insisted on an immediate rematch in the same conditions, despite it not really making a lot of sense except to take back that loss. As a rematch seems impossible in this case, do you think it is unfair to say that we don't actually yet know how this loss will really affect McGregor and his mental focus? Um, I don't think it's a bad question at all. Uh, hmm. Well, the rematch was sort of to be. There's, there was believe, there were some rumors and no hard evidence, but let's say it's true that he had overtrained and was on antibiotics for a staph infection. 
uh, prior to the first Diaz fight, he was looking to say that there was no circumstance here in actuality in terms of the weight or the opponent himself in a normal circumstance that was beyond his grasp. Uh, and so he wanted the same conditions to prove that. Um, and to an, to an extent did, although Diaz now claims he was injured in the second fight. So um, there's there's still some debate about that. And I think that will likely be exploited for the third fight if and when it's made. Um, I'll say this. I spoke to Alistair Overeem, who you guys know won a K-1 title, uh, won a Strikeforce title, and Dream and everything else. And I asked him about this prior to the fight, and I think his takeaway was, pardon um, me, if Connor doesn't spend too long away from MMA, it shouldn't really affect him, win or lose. That the only real concern is that if you, he said he's, he spent two years in kickboxing, and that if you do two years in kickboxing, go back to MMA, it was a little bit hard. You're asking a little bit of a different question, which is, he wasn't gone that long, but he lost. I don't see if he wins or loses his next bout. I don't know, McGregor, assuming it's MMA. I don't see this performance, and I don't really see this entire experience as ultimately uh, one that undermines him, other than if these cardio issues are irresolvable. Because if you thought the cardio issues from the first DS fight were just a staph infection, Okay. And then you could say, well, it happened again in the second DS fight, but he rebounded. Okay. But here they happened again. And they happened again without Mayweather doing a ton of work to get there. It was mostly Connor's work that put him there. And so you might say, well, that's resolvable. That's fine. But what I'm saying to you is there's evidence to believe that this is an ongoing permanent condition not hard evidence but some evidence and if that's the case that you will say this experience was bad because it gave clear evidence that he's got a real achilles heel in this particular way but if that's not the case that this is a resolvable problem or you know even if he can't quite get rid of it he can certainly mitigate the worst effects of it right he doesn't fall off a cliff in terms of his energy levels I ultimately think this will be a major benefit to him, a major benefit to him. He will have gone and sharpened his skills in another department. We have seen guys do that in wrestling and BJJ and had very, very good effects with it. Um, you know, he did hang in there and prove that he was a, a very talented boxer um, against Mayweather. And I do think he'll take some of those skills back with him. What fight could he possibly be in? that is going to be bigger than this, and it's going to ask more of him promotionally from this. I mean, I saw this article, I think it was in SBNation.com, and they weren't lamenting it. They were just sort of acknowledging that if you looked at the monetary payout, Floyd and Connor made 70 times what the rest of the card made combined. Yeah, good. Good. Because those dudes put in a Herculean amount of effort. The amount of media they did, the amount of questions they answered, the conference calls, the video shoots, the photo shoots, the ads for direct TV, the ads on Instagram, or the whole nine. All these different responsibilities they had to meet, and everyone bought that fight because of those two. God bless Badu Jack. He looked like a absolute killer on Saturday night, but they didn't buy that fight for him. They bought it for Connor and Floyd.
And so I, I to me, it's like between the amount of responsibility he had to own for this one, between that, and then you add in on top of that, um, all the things he had to focus on to make himself ready for this moment. I, I just don't see how that hurts him going backwards. And as Overing noted, he didn't spend enough time in boxing to have let the other skills get too rusty. The only catch is that Floyd appears, maybe, it seems like he appears to have given evidence to the claim that Connor's got some enduring, serious, very potentially costly cardio issues that need addressing pronto. Uh, Robert Bird's performance. Didn't like it. I look, I want to know what you thought of the referee in the Maymac fight. I thought he was bad. Uh, personally, aside from the patronizing talk at Connor before they touched gloves. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. He was pretty patronizing. I thought he was pretty fair. Connor did throw a few cheeky rabbit punches to the back of the head, but equally, Bird did warn Floyd for deliberately ducking his head and turning his back. Agreed. And I've made this point before. We all said prior to the fight that, like, look, it's going to be the referee's job to enforce the rules. Now, you don't want to go in there and absolutely, like, hammer a guy in the back of the head, but, you know, skirting the lines a little bit. He kind of needed to do that to give himself any chance of real victory. I, in the end, I don't know how much it meant, but I'm not really mad at him for doing that. The referee in this fight could have been a much bigger issue, but as it's barely been mentioned afterwards, does it show that people couldn't really fault it? Uh, and someone says he was—he did talk patronizingly to Connor before they touched gloves, but then let Connor constantly foul without warnings. There's that too, or you know, verbal warnings, but not any kind of real significant warning. So my major problem with it was that um, if you want to let something go, then let it go, right? I, oh, I don't have a problem with X, but you should be in a good position to see it. And yes, they were turning, which makes it hard. Um, and they want to give referees to some of these older guys because they have more experience. But if you notice something, the referees in MMA are a little bit younger. Have you guys noticed that? You have a lot younger referees in MMA, relatively speaking. Because, dude, if someone's on the ground, you got you got to dive on in there. You know, if someone's just taking a bah, bah, and, you know, they're getting their, in the words of Conor McGregor, their head bounced off the canvas, you know, Big John's got to get up in there. Mario Masaki might let it go <laughs> a little while, but you know what I'm saying? Like, this is a, uh, maybe athletic is a strong word, but this requires a certain amount of physical um, dexterity and dare I say explosiveness timing certainly uh, you got to get up in there physically you have to your body has to be moving a certain way and it's not it's not easy to follow two people who are like twisting in space to get around where you need to be especially in the confines of a ring where it's much narrower and smaller but I I just felt like he missed the boat on that a lot if you want to let Connor stuff go because you just don't want to take a point this is a consequential bout in some ways fine I get it but you need to be in a position to properly evaluate everything you're seeing. And if you're not, and stuff is happening, you're not even acknowledging. Because there were sometimes he broke it up, and sometimes he would give a verbal warning. There were sometimes he didn't even say anything. And it was, he was, you know, doing this stuff. It was like, I'm not saying that was, again, I'm not saying those punches were incredibly consequential, but I just want my referees to be in a position where they can make those kinds of informed judgments. Um, I'll say this. I thought the stoppage was good. I thought the stoppage was good. I know some folks are saying, Con and, I, and I frankly, I totally understand Connor's point. I don't think it's a bad point. His point is like, look, was the guy landing on me? Yeah, the guy was landing on me, but you hear me talking. I sound fine. 
I sound absolutely um, uh, about my wits. I sound, uh, I don't think clairvoyant is exactly the word I'm looking for, but um, lucid, clear, and rational. Uh, making eye contact, the whole nine. And I think that's a fair point. And then he said, I would really admit the issue is just fatigue. Uh, I believe Connor. I believe him. I will take Robert Byrd's side in this instance because Robert Byrd is not a mind reader. You know, he doesn't know what you are feeling and not feeling. What he can see is that you look exhausted. And what he can see is that these shots are landing unobstructed. And when Connor did try to clinch, Floyd, brilliant as he always is, was able to frame almost in the same way home framed against Rousey and then push off off the frame. Connor was coming in wide with these clinch hugs and Floyd inside control, man. Isn't that amazing in fighting how absolutely critical inside control is? Why do you need inside control? You need it on an underhook, right? Because you want to be tight on the body, but running on the waist or the shoulders to get a takedown, right? Or to be able to stand up off the bottom. And here's Floyd again. Connor comes in wide. What does Floyd do? Floyd puts the framing inside so that he can control the inside space. It doesn't matter if it's jujitsu. It doesn't matter if it's wrestling. Even uh, Muay Thai clinch doesn't matter if it's Muay Thai. Doesn't matter if it's judo. Doesn't matter if it's boxing. Look at this, folks. This is a point I haven't heard a lot of people make. Inside control matters in fighting, period. In any kind of combative sport, inside control is absolutely critical. Inside control, inside control, inside control, inside control. You saw it here. You see it in all the other sports. We just talk about it much more openly there. Here's another example of being on the inside and why that matters. Um, in any case, I thought the stoppage was good because Bird can't, as I mentioned, can't reach your mind. He can only go up what he's seeing. And what he's seeing is a guy who looks obviously fatigued, taking unanswered shots for a prolonged period of time. And also, he's doing that in a context where you have one fighter who is 49-0 and the other one is 0-0. And also in a context where for the first time these refer the excuse me, this commission for reasons that we've discussed ad nauseum uh, has allowed the gloves to go to eight ounces. I, I think that was a prudent call. Could Conor McGregor have gone longer? Maybe. Um, should Conor McGregor have taken a knee? I think he should have. This is the veteran experience we're talking about. He just doesn't have, uh, at least on that Saturday night, of course, he didn't have the requisite experience and the mental wherewithal, the presence of mind um, to make that kind of a call. So that kind of, maybe it cost him a little bit. But here's the truth of the matter. I thought in, in some ways this is kind of a perfect scenario. Um, you know, perfect is a bit of a strong word, especially if you're a Conor McGregor fan. You might be saying, well, perfect might be him winning. But okay, fair enough. But hear me out on this for just a second. You know, it's, it was never impossible for Conor to win. It was never impossible. But it was very much unrealistic. And I think we can all see that now. Um, he trained his ass off for this one. He was ready for this one. And, it, and I, at no point did I ever feel like Floyd was in danger. I do believe Connor performed quite ably. But Floyd was never really in danger. Um, and I, I would say this. You look at those judges' scorecards where, in my book, I don't know how you could possibly say Connor didn't win the first three rounds. After that, it gets a little dicey at times, but first three, easy to Connor McGregor. Easy. And you can say if you want, hey, Floyd gave him away or whatever. Fine. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but Connor won him. I mean, I also don't understand the argument where you can say Floyd gave him away and then two judges are giving him 
two of those first three rounds. Well, which is it? Did he give them away or did he win them? So it's just insane to uh, try to articulate this. I'm glad we didn't have a judging controversy. We had no judging controversy here, which, by the way, we would have had uh, had this gone the distance because maybe Connor would have come back in the 11th and 12th. You know, maybe he would have found a way to get a second wind or something, taking a knee maybe in the 10th, but then found a way to ride the ship in the 11th and 12th. And um, that would have only muddied the waters even further. Worse, worse, what if Connor had been allowed to continue? And while he was not hurt when the fight was stopped here by his own admission, what if he had gotten hurt? <clears throat> Who would that have served? Who would that have served? You know, what if he had gotten stretched? Uh, you know, what if he had taken a really prolonged beating and then all of a sudden everyone got sour on it? Part of the reason why this works is that the win felt appropriate enough without being savage, without being viscerally, to some, nauseating. The New York Times, for reasons I will never understand, wrote that this guy was covered in blood when he didn't have, I mean, he barely had a... Uh, a mouse under his eye, much less any blood. But what if there had been, right? We would have had a 49-0 guy versus an 0-0 guy. Uh, he bloodied and then gets viciously, you know, toe-curling KO'd. That, that wouldn't serve anybody's interest. This guy has a career after this. You know, Floyd doesn't. Floyd's done after this. But Connor has, I mean, he's, this guy is definitely going to keep fighting, it looked like. He seemed like he very much enjoys to compete. Um, and you want to take that, for, you want to potentially jeopardize that? just have a cleaner finish. I mean, I understand if you're a fan and you wanted to give him every opportunity. I, I completely, I completely get it. And I understand Connor's complaint, but this is why the sport is regulated by the government. Uh, as woefully inadequate as the commission might be, you need a state apparatus protecting these guys from themselves. Uh, in the end, Connor can hold his head up high and he didn't take a ton of abuse. He didn't get cut up. He didn't get concussed. And he can now resume if should he choose to, mixed martial arts activities without this being an incredibly costly or damaging one, either for his reputation or his, you know, vital organs, quite literally. So in the end, Robert Byrd, I did not think was all that great of a referee during the course of the bout, but that stoppage, I really think you got to think twice about it if you didn't like it. I think it serves a lot of interests, including most especially Connors. Uh, can the UFC take back any of the purse paid to John Jones if it proves he was if uh, if it is proved he was taking steroids before the DC fight? Yes, they can, but I don't think on those grounds specifically. I believe that they're able to uh, impose financial penalties after the fact. So it's not like they can withhold withhold purse i mean ultimately it's the same amount of money that might be get might being might be seized or uh you know taken away from him but if not in that manner they can't say we're going to hold on to I mean, the purse has been paid out uh, i believe i'm not sure exactly if, if the pay-per-view money has been paid out in full but um pardon me but i think what they can say is and i asked i asked dana white this at the scrum after the fact I said, beyond what USADA might do uh, and beyond the potential act of stripping him, which, again, is not a given, but seems probable, um, could the or is the UFC considering 
any other additional kind of penalty, including a financial one. And he said it's possible. So he didn't really commit to anything. I think obviously at that juncture, that would be very premature. But it does at least indicate that additional forms of punitive action are available should they be should they be warranted. Uh, this person goes on to say, people talk about protecting fighters from drug cheats, but the promotion also needs to take its own protection in these cases as commercially. This must make a negative dent on the promotion as it just looks like there are juice heads in the sport rather than athletes. The biggest problem with MMA fighters is that they're, I, again, I don't know what the case is with John. He is entitled to due process. Let's take him out of the equation for the sake of this argument. What I can say is generally MMA fighters are quite bad at cheating when it comes to this kind of thing. There's a story out in The Guardian. Ready for this? Uh, here's the headline. Uh, sport doping study revealing wider usage published after, quote, scandalous delay. Almost a six-year wrangle delays the release of an anonymous surveys done after elite athletic events in 2011, in which 57% of competitors doing admitted doping compared to under 4% in water results. You know, I was at that, uh, uh, it was the same, it was the same um, scrum as Dana White, Jeff Nowitzki spoke first, and he was like, well, when we first got started, we had X amount of adverse findings, and now we've got less adverse findings. And I'm like, that's not evidence of anything. That's just evidence you have less adverse findings. WADA, through all the testing that they sanctioned, was able to collect 4% on, uh, was able to catch through testing 4% of you of, uh, of athletes in these various competitions over the course of an, uh, a period of time and then you have at least 57 percent admitting that they were doing it during that time <laughs> and and that 57 is probably there's reason to believe conservative right it could be higher than that even uh, a controversial study suggesting that doping in sport is far more prevalent than was found to be by conventional testing has finally been published after years of wrangling uh, the research commission and funded by WADA has taken almost six years to be officially published, despite the results being leaked to the New York Times and later in the UK under parliamentary privilege by Culture, Media and Sport Committee on Blood Doping and Athletics. Um, so there you go. So uh, I talked to uh, some writers who were covering the uh, Sochi testing scandal and what their point is is that testing is largely not largely testing is to some extent theater that partly what it is is yes it does catch some some uh users uh and it does deter others but part of it might be that they know they're not going to catch anyone who's really good at cheating but it's this kabuki theater that lets the public know that something's being done and that it has this sort of relatively noticeable intimidating presence among the fighters, even if it doesn't ultimately deter them. It's a show of force rather than being, you know, really the most important way to tell. But, you know, when Jeff Davinsky gets up there and says, hey, we had X amount of adverse findings and now we have one half of X or 10% of X, that sounds like progress, but that really doesn't tell you anything. They have no way of knowing what's happening. It's just interesting that um, MMA fighters have been historically quite bad at cheating because they never needed to be good. What you're finding in athletics is as testing gets better, um, so does usage. In terms, when I say better, I mean in terms of uh, not being detectable, and um, and the users get better at disguising it or finding a way to 
circumvent um, the testing altogether, as in the case of you know what, what you see in the, the Icarus documentary, where yes, they're being tested, um, but you know the samples are being swapped. So I'm sure the samples are full of adverse findings. They just never got tested because of someone else's urine being in there. But just keep that in mind. It's like we we grew up in an age where there was very lax testing, and as testing gets better. And as MMA fighters make more money, I entirely expect there to be designer stuff that's ultimately uncovered. I entirely expect that MMA fighters are going to get better at cheating. It's just historically they've been quite bad at it. And so that's why they get caught a lot more easily. And again, I don't know what the situation is with John. But we're going to have to wait and see. Luke, are there any current UFC champions you could beat up? No. No, definitely not. Uh, Page Van Zandt's moved to flyweight. What do you think about Page Van Zandt's debut on flyweight? I've always thought that her physicality and strength was a big part of her initial success, so it does seem risky to move to a weight division where she loses part of that power differential. I completely agree. And she's fighting Jessica I, who was on quite the slide. I think, what, four, five, six losses, something like that? Um, but nevertheless, I, I agree. It was this sort of this, this rabidity that she had like, in your face all the time, staying on you, throwing for head tosses. And maybe they were ill-advised, but then she would scramble. and She was sort of this sort of physical force that people had to quite literally physically tame, subdue. Um, and without it, they did not necessarily have a ton of success. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't exactly know. Except maybe she felt like she hit a roadblock, or maybe she felt like weight cutting was killing her, or maybe she feels like she can put on size. I, it'll be interesting to see. I don't think, I don't think the Jessica I fight is necessarily all that dangerous for her. Not that she's a pushover. I'm just saying it doesn't seem especially uh, arduous. It's just I don't really know what kind of future there is to the point of your question. It's a great one. I completely agree for now. But, you know, we'll see. CM Punk would crush Luke inside of 10 seconds. No. No, no, he wouldn't. Sorry to, sorry to hurt you there, but no. That definitely would not happen. Uh, Stipe. Luke, is Stipe and his new contract situation sorted out yet? Dana said they were trying to make John Jones and Stipe, but appreciate that that could have been some hype talk from Dana in the face of the drugs failure last week. No, it is not sorted out yet. Dana said it in the way where, because we asked him at the at the at the uh, scrum, you know, what were you? I forget exactly what the question was, but I think it was like, what were you? What was next for John? And he was like, oh yeah, we were looking at uh, Stipe in December. I don't know if that was internal stuff. I don't know if they had brought that to Steve's attention yet, but at a bare minimum, it seemed like that was internally what was on the radar for uh, for the company. Now, whether Steve would have complied with that ultimately is hard to say. It seems like it would have been an opportunity you wouldn't want to pass up, but uh, God only knows. After Connor, John Jones, Nate, and Ronda, is Stipe next in line as the biggest draw on the radar? Um, I still think Ioana and Jacek can be bigger than she is. She's not exactly all that popular, 
Now, she is very popular with the hardcore audience, but in terms of someone who can draw 500,000 buys, there's, she's not that. But I think she could be, uh, or at least more than she is. Um, she stands out to me as somebody who could be something. Um, well, I'll see about Woodley. I don't think the book is totally written yet on Luke Rockhold. Uh, maybe not on Chris Weidman to an extent. Um, trying to think. I think Habib could be somebody big. I think Tony Ferguson could be somebody big. Kevin Lee seems like he's got a ton of potential. Uh, and you can sort of go down the line there. There's a lot of people who could potentially turn that corner who just haven't quite gotten there yet. Uh, steroid abuse and brain damage. There are many people who feel that steroid abuse should be punished harshly, not simply as punishment for cheating or to discourage the use of drugs that are dangerous to the user, but, but specifically because PEDs make fighters more powerful, leading to striking that causes additional brain damage and potentially killing someone. Okay. Would you share your thoughts on this on this argument for harsh punishments for PEDs? Well, uh, I made this point before. Um, uh, it is clear that, not to everyone, but to many who use, it does confer an advantage. I mean, that's what they call performance-dancing drugs, right? Um, now, what they take, how they take it, how long they took it, what it does to them, if people's bodies respond differently, uh, it's still, in that sense, a case-by-case -case, uh, basis. But this is my point. Let's assume for a second that you guys believe WADA has cleaned up the sport. Um, quite literally, there's no evidence of that. But let's just say that it's true, right? You believe it. Like, there might be no evidence, but that's because you might say, well, look, evidence is hard to collect. Okay. I, I would agree. Uh, let's, say that, that, let's, say that you, let's say that usage is down. Let's, I'll even be conservative. Let's say 25%. Uh, is there any evidence to conclude that the injury rate in MMA, or more specifically, of course, the UFC with USADA, is in any way down comparable to a decline in usage? I mean, you literally can't even answer that question because you don't know. But I would say, uh, just looking around, even if you feel like PEDs are cheating, even if you feel like they should be harshly punished, you know full well you cannot answer that. There's no evidence of it. There's no way to measure this. Uh, and I would say that in terms of um, the, the rate at which the fights go to decision, number one, that actually would not, it, it, that is somewhat up, partly that's a little bit of a parity issue as the, uh, as the fighters get better and more, that also does not indicate that in any way the sport is safer. Did the sport all of a sudden in, MMA, in UFC, did it get safer when USADA came along? Does it look safer to you? Do you feel like guys are getting injured in terms of what happens in fights less? Now, I think training practices are getting a little bit better. And that's not nothing. That's actually something. But in the middle of competition, is it down? What steroids appear to do, and when I say steroids, I'm using it as a catch-all for PEDs. What they appear to do is they don't overall reduce the amount of uh, violence that one witnesses. It just changes the distribution. So the overall damage is roughly the same. It just is get, gets more concentrated in certain areas. It changes the balance. And you can say, well, look, that change is enough to ban them. That's fine. We can have that argument, but I don't know that there's any, in the, there's, there, I, to my knowledge, and if someone has these research done to, to um, properly articulate this and defend this position with, you know, on an evidentiary basis, there is no evidence that's safe for now. None. Zero. Uh, and we make these assumptions because they feel like they're true. Um, they feel like they make sense. 
and I'm not again, I'm not trying to talk you out of your position. You guys know I've been a different position than most. Um, if you feel like there should be harsh penalties because it just seems intuitively obvious to you, uh, I think that's a very compelling logic uh, to a certain extent. On the other hand, I'm typically a little bit, I think, you know, ordinarily, even those people would want to exercise caution about what conclusions you can draw in the absence of any kind of research or evidence at all. And there's none. There's none that A, usage is down, and there's none that even if it is, that there's a subsequent decline in the overall amount of violence. I mean, if you're saying PEDs make someone more dangerous, then you're also saying no PEDs make someone less dangerous. And if someone is less dangerous, then you're saying their ability to exact violence has been compromised to an extent. And if that's the case, there should be some kind of uh, observable change to the UFC's fights complexion that one could note. And I don't see, maybe you see it, and if you do, by all means, let me know. But I don't see it. So either there's been no decline in uh, the amount of usage, or something's wrong with that theory about what those things do in terms of performance enhancement or reduction. Something's missing here, because I don't think the UFC is any safer than it once was. In fact, it's probably as dangerous as it ever was. And even if someone can defend themselves, like in boxing, we were like, we had this debate about like, how can Connor, what does he have to worry about what's happening in boxing when this guy can, has to worry about taking shins to the face and knees to the ribs? That's all true. But again, boxing can be like Chinese water torture, right? Where, uh, yes, I mean, one big punch can drop you. I just had Mike Tyson in the studio today, but um, it's, that's, it's that, it's that, you know, that accumulation of damage over time. So even if the guys are getting better at defending themselves, they could be even taking more damage through that parity that's found through defensive best practices. And in that case, um, there would be no evidence that any kind of reduction in perceived PED use in any way made this sport safer. So all, all I'm saying to you is, look, I'm perfectly willing to believe certain things that sound intuitively true. Know that I am acting outside the boundaries of rationality by asking for some kind of evidentiary basis upon which to make these conclusions. Uh, Six point million pay-per-view buys. Dana said on Uriah social media, I think it was like Snapchat, that Maymac did 6.5 million buys. Uh, I would want to see that independently verified. And if I were you, I would hold your horses on that. But if that's true, and I can believe it's possible, <coughs> it'll be a long time before anyone gets close to that. And it will have been a major success, and Connor will have gotten paid, paid. He'd make over 100 mil at that point. He'd be close to 120, 150 at that point. Um, okay. There's just little children here. Shab Diaz. Yes. What are your thoughts on Brendan Shab lying on the Joe Rogan podcast about what he and Nate talked about after the Maymac Shab? There's no periods here. So hold on. Lying on the Joe Rogan podcast about what he and Nate talked about after May Mac, period. Shab said that he told Nate to use his words while the video evidence shows that Shab told Nate Connor teed off on you. What are your thoughts on Shab lying? I spoke to Shab. He doesn't, he tells me that's not what he said. Uh, what he told me was he said, I think you're off. I have not watched the Joe Rogan podcast. I do not know exactly what he said. Also, any thoughts on why Rogan did not call him out on it because he does that a lot to his podcast normally? 
Maybe he believes he's telling the truth. I don't, I don't know. Will this affect either man moving forward? No. General thoughts. Uh, Brendan is a large supporter of Connor. Nate is not. <laughs> They're going to have wildly different interpretations about what happened. Uh, and 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 uh, what they saw. One of the funny things about this whole thing was when this fight was over, you know, I am in part of MMA media, so I was looking around, and all my colleagues were like, "Man, Connor did real well." Da 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 da. And then you go over to boxing, and they're like, "Yeah, Connor did all right, but uh, really Floyd let him win." You know, Floyd Floyd was the one who was the you know, amazing. And then you look at the haters, the ones who were like, "This is a joke and a farce, and I'm not watching it." And Americans are getting conned. You go back and look what they said after the fight, and they're like, "Yep, see, I told you." See, I told you they were going to get conned. You got conned. In other words, not merely did everyone see what they wanted to see, but uh, everyone looked at this fight and found a way to reinforce their worldview as a consequence. The MMA you know, fans and media saw enough reason to think Conor proved a lot of things that we needed him to prove or something. And Conversely, boxing saw that with Floyd, and then conversely, the people who stay extra woke think that their wokeness was validated. Um, and I think you saw some of that here play out. Um, do I agree 100% with, with Brendan about Connor's performance? No, not exactly. Um, I have not talked to Nate, but based on what he was saying in that video, from what you could tell, I don't agree 100% with him either. I'm somewhere in the middle of the two. Uh, but I don't know that Shab is... I mean, why would Shab lie? This video, I mean, maybe he did. I don't know. Shab is not the person to typically walk back his words, is he? He seems to, like, stick with it no matter what. Mm-mm. You know what? I'll watch the video again. You know, Russell, we should play that video on the air. Okay. See what people can say. People are saying... That Shab said, Nate or uh, Connor teed off on you, and Shab told me he said, "What did he say? I got it." He well, said, "He goes, I think you're off." How can people question what the video is? Because the, the audio is the audio is bad. Uh, it's, it's been not, on Rogan's podcast. Now. Yeah, we'll play it on the show today. All right. uh, okay, someone says Connor's chin is spent. I don't think he wins another fight against a fighter he can't KO. His lack of diff defense affects his cardio. He's too keen to take a shot on the chin, way forward, and throw his left. This was another thing that was sort of like, I'm not going to say exposed, but sort of underscored in this fight. Um, he's offensively a dynamo. He is defensively not great. He's never been a great defensive fighter. Uh, and he kind of lives on his chin a little bit, and it's been a rock chin. But that's going to be something he's going to need to add to his game if he wants to have some, some longevity. Um, but... He didn't knock out Holloway, and he beat him with a torn ACL. Now, that was a different Holloway, but that was a different Connor. This is my point about Nate walking forward and hitting the takedown. Um, if he can find ways to address at least some of these cardio issues and then really begin to change, the, get away from what he does best, but in vulnerable situations, find better defensive answers, uh, I, think, I, think he can, I think he can do a lot better than he – he's already done really damn well, but, I mean – he can do a lot to address some of these quite present challenges, you know. Uh, how can you someone says how can you say his chin is gone? Yeah, I don't I don't buy that either. 
grapple. He's never been knocked down. Floyd's finish over the weekend was largely down to his excellent body work. That's true. Uh, someone says, quote, Ronda wasn't either knocked down by Amanda Nunes. Connor was about to be KO'd by Nate and wrestled to avoid it, which is smart. On the ground, also, he was about to be KO'd and gave Nate his back for a quick painless choke to avoid it. Sort of. He actually tried. He actually tried to. Uh, he actually tried to pass and couldn't. Um, he was about to be KO'd by Floyd, and the ref saved him from that ending. So yes, he was as good as Ronda versus Nunez. I don't know if that's true. All right. Uh, weight cutting in MMA versus boxing. Look, I was struck by the size difference between Cruz. A 135-pounder, Daniel Jacobs, a 160-pounder, and Tyron Woodley, a 170-pounder at the Fox desk. There wasn't much of a difference between Cruz and Jacobs. And there, while there was a noticeable difference between Jacobs and Woodley. Jacobs is viewed in boxing as a huge middleweight. He was noticeably bigger than uh, Triple G, who was no smaller than 160 either. So the question is, why is there so much of a difference in weight cutting between boxing and MMA? Good question. And uh, here are your theories. This, this person purports, one culture thing which leads to other fighters being forced to do it to not be smaller that is absolutely correct it is a weight cutting practices in mixed martial arts are heavily derived from 10 years ago's uh, amateur wrestling infusion uh, that's predominantly where it comes from there is just this belief while this is being undermined with modern best practices uh, MMA fighters and well I should say wrestlers cut Historically, less so now, but historically cut a ton of weight. Those practices were brought over to MMA, um, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, and they became sort of the cultural norm, although that is certainly changing. B, weight being comparatively less of a factor in boxing vis-a-vis -vis MMA. I don't buy that. Uh, fighting 36 minutes, 12, 3 rounds, which needs more cardio. That might be one issue. And D, more weight classes. Definitely the last two. Definitely the last two. Once the size equals greater advantage in MMA than boxing, George Lockhart said that when talking to Ariel a while back, that with all the grappling, it's more beneficial to be as big as possible in MMA. Whereas in boxing, it can hinder your hand speed, cardio, and footwork a bit more. Yep. That sounds about right. Um, USADA queries. In the wake of the Jones news, I was wondering if you could clarify some things about USADA. I'm completely naive to the whole thing. If I can, I've heard some say there's ways around USADA's testing. Do you think this is true? It's those ways around everybody's testing. And how would you get around a random testing system? You could have stuff that their testing doesn't detect. You could dose in a way that their testing doesn't detect. Um, you could have some kind of sophisticated mole on the inside. Uh, there are any number of ways to get around random testing. Any number of ways. Uh, tainted supplements. Do you buy this excuse? I personally don't think it's impossible, but some knowledgeable people completely laugh this excuse off. Again, how can you fake a tainted supplement? Well, I mean, um, again, everyth everything can be cheated, right? You can take something you know the whole line is tainted, and you can take it, and then you get caught. You say, yeah, but I, I didn't know, and they test the line, and they find out that, yeah, there's tons of the stuff that's all uh, jacked up. And it wasn't listed on their prohibited, or their, uh, you know, their, they, have a, they have a supplements list of like all the things that I've ever had, you know, ever been tainted. Look at that list. Look at the list USADA itself has compiled 
of supplements that they're known to carry prohibited substances on them that are not listed on the label. So when people laugh it off, it's like, what are you laughing off? This is literally documented. And the list is huge. It's a huge list. I've mentioned this before. The FDA does regulate supplements, but not necessarily in the way that you think. Um, and predominantly what they check and maintain are manufacturing standards. And even those manufacturing standards are not particularly an onerous burden for these people to come up with. That's why you can have a lot of these companies that are fly-by-night. Um, uh, I know Eric McGracken over these supplement makers who they'll buy in earnest, I don't know, let's say creatine. And in the creatine, you've got DHEA. And you're like, well, wait a second. I was just trying to get some monohydrate, and now I've got this. Uh, I'm going to sue you because uh, this is what you're doing is illegal. Um, and athletes have tried that before. A lot of these supplement companies are fly-by-night operations where they might make some money. A lot of them go out of business. A lot of them don't have money. You can Google some other athletes who have sued supplement companies, and one, and the ultimately the plaintiffs in these cases have not been. I mean, they got awarded money on paper. But there was ultimately no money to get. So they ended up having to spend tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees, and they didn't get anything in the end. Now, that's not the case probably with all the supplement manufacturers. But, you know, you see some of the things these guys are taking from some of these companies. Uh, you know, they're, they're taking some things from some fairly sketchy sources. So it's not, it's not a joke. I mean, USADA has a whole page list of this. And they've got a whole sheet. I encourage you to look it up uh, about all the different supplements that have come up. Uh, showing things that aren't supposed to be on there. How prevalent it is in terms of the fight. I mean, how, how do I say this? To the extent fighters have used it as an excuse and been you know, exonerated either in full or partially by USADA, in other words, to what extent are they gaming the system? That's anybody's guess. But when you have a supplement industry that USADA itself notes has a demonstrated record of getting this wrong, when you know that the FDA doesn't uh, check products up front, predominantly in terms of maintenance, checks manufacturing standards, and is very slow to get after supplement makers who have um, either knowingly or unknowingly spiked their products with things that aren't supposed to be in them, the notion that fighters who are trying to find any kind of edge, in this case legal, and their minds legal, uh, would run afoul of USADA's fairly strict regulations seems to me not not merely not laughable, it seems to me an inevitability. Finally, after learning more about the drug Jones popped for this time, coupled with the estrogen blocker he had in the system, what are your overall assumptions on Jones PEDs? Well, uh, So there's two ways to look at this. And again, Jones is entitled to due process. And as I said on the MMA beat last week, and I mean it, I really don't know what to think about Jones anymore. Um, is it possible he will be completely exonerated in this? Sure. Uh, is it possible he will be completely found guilty in this? Sure. And I don't really know which is which. There's two interpretations. One is that you look at what he got caught for previously. Um, these are drugs that are specific in nature, including in the ways in which they're combined in post-cycle therapy for other forms of um, performance-enhancing drug use, and, and then you combine that with, in this case, Darinabol, uh, 
an anabolic agent. And you say to yourself, you have you have enough evidence here to conclude, if you want to, you can say, you have enough evidence here to conclude quite clearly that this is somebody um, who is just being caught cheating. And there's really not more complicated than that. You don't need to overthink this. On the other hand, you could say this is a guy who has a demonstrated record of uh, achievement, but also being quite reckless in his personal life and reckless to the point of outright negligence, if not not necessarily malfeasance, although in some cases, I suppose, but in terms of his athletic career, uh, certainly negligence, and that he just doesn't know how to manage risk appropriately. And so um, he might deserve some sanction, but potentially not as much as someone otherwise should, because what he's doing is not intentionally cheating. It's just a, it's a stunning degree of recklessness. And again, inability to manage risk. Those are your two choices, and either one isn't good. Um, even the best case scenario is not good. Unless, again, unless there's some insanely mitigating factor, like I know one of his teammates or friends might have had something, something spiked. You know, if they can, you know, set up or something. I mean, if they can prove that, hey, all bets are off, you know. But, uh, but I, I, realistically, those are your two options. You know, which one is it? You can decide, you know. Will we see more of you and Big Brown? Uh, I really enjoy watching the two of you talk about MMA. We'll see more of this in the future. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't live in LA, but to the extent we can work something out, sure. There aren't a lot of duos who have the same combination of firsthand experience from competition and training. Well, I have none from tra uh, competition. Ability to analyze fights, knowledge about the MMA business, and a good sense of humor. Granted, you're not evenly matched in all four of those aspects, but that works out fine. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Boy, you guys seem to like it, huh? There's a bunch of comments here. Well, thank you so much. I was really happy to be on his podcast. And uh, yeah, it's funny. Like if if you don't listen to my radio show, not that this, I, and I'm happy to be on every fight. Don't don't misunderstand me. This is a great platform. But um, you know, I'm on that show. I'm on my own show ten days a week, or excuse me, ten hours a week. And uh, you know, I thought I thought what you the the me you saw there was. Uh, more authentically me in terms of the wider broader scope of my personality in life and uh, and you know we talk fights too and stuff and, and and I worked well with Brendan I've known Brendan for a long time you know so when you know someone like that and uh, and you get along with them it makes it easy and I made this point before you know people disagree in MMA and there's no and that's fine um, Brendan and I didn't necessarily agree with a lot of things we don't like fight about it but we often see people with competing ideas in MMA all of a sudden turn things or not. It, it, sometimes they have a mind of their own and, and things become intensely negative when they don't need to be. You can disagree without being, you know, a jackass to everyone. And I've, I look, I've been a jackass to people I've only disagreed with for no good reason. Like I am hardly innocent of this kind of thing, but it's having done it, uh, there's no need for it, yeah. Time has flown by. It's 2.15. Let's go to the Twitter machine.
Yeah, here's Brendan Schaub. The words teed off never came out of my mouth. I would never disrespect Nate like that. I said, I think you're wrong. Interesting. Uh, I think your new chair money, which I haven't bought the chair yet, needs to go to Ariel due to his latest circumstances, the experience with thing. Oh, God. Uh, I feel bad for him. But he's letting them have it on Twitter. Good for him. He got jerked around. Ooh, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being fluent, how would you honestly rate your Spanish-speaking skills? Four, five on my best day. What fight do you wish would happen but is unlikely to be made by UFC matchmakers? Jones versus Miocic. Um, why not have USADA-approved supplements? I think that would require a degree of coordination that is logistically impossible. Who would be in charge of such a thing? How could you monitor such a thing? If you're, if you're saying that USADA-approved, you're saying every single batch, every single bottle, every single pill, Every single scoop, all of its all of its hunky dory. That's a lot of oversight. Do you think Triple G versus Canelo has affected the pay per view buys from Mac? No, maybe the other way around. Um, what would a six round boxing fight between Mayweather and McGregor look like? Something similar, but Mayweather would have gotten a lot busier early. Yeah, this may have been discussed already, but two of the three judges giving Connor only one round for the first three is just unconscionable, just insane. You guys know my thoughts on judging, and that is that is a reason why. I mean, how can an adult say something like that? I, I just don't know. I have no clue how you can give a guy around like that. Besides Ferguson, who is the more who is the more dangerous to Connor? Habib or Kevin Lee? I would say Habib. I would say Habib. So it says, I'd say Cody is up there as a big draw. Well, he hasn't proven to be one, but I would agree that he's got that potential. Does Floyd come back for a rematch seeing the sustained belief in a McGregor victory by his huge fan base? I seriously doubt it. Never say never, but I would put a significant no on that. Who was the more delusional about McGregor, Bayless or Schaub? I think to an extent there are some things Schaub said that were proven to be wrong, and there are some things he said that were he was vindicated about. Bayless is just, I mean, but Bayless is not trying. He's just saying things. So like saying he's wrong is sort of like saying he spoke. He's almost, he, it's, it's, it, the truth value of it is irrelevant. What arguments are there for Connor to go back to MMA? A couple. One, he might be a better fighter now. Uh, two, I think he might be able to get an ownership stake from the UFC. Three, he's the champion. He should defend his title. Four, there are a ton of interesting fights for him where he can make big money. And five, I think he's a competitor. I think he likes to compete. He likes big checks, but he also likes to compete. And uh, it would it would satisfy it would satisfy his internal drive. Um, with Jones potentially gone, is Bisping the next biggest UFC draw after Connor? 
Jesus. Uh, God, I don't know. Cyborg is there, so maybe her. Uh, Jesus, I don't know. Man. That's a good question. I don't know. I have to look at the roster, but... Will the Maymac fight add more pay-per-views to the Canelo versus Triple G fight? I don't think so. It's certainly... There was a belief, or at least a concern, that if things went south, whatever that may mean for you, that it left a sour taste in people's mouth, had the result done that, which it didn't, but had it done that for Mayweather and McGregor, that that ultimately would have turned people off from boxing generally. That didn't happen. However, with a $100 pay-per-view in close proximity to this one, even if folks weren't turned off, do they really have the disposable income to commit to another boxing event? Um, that is still much a, a big question. So, it, so in other words, it could still have a depressive effect, but not potentially a massively depressive effect. Did you see the body shot Connor landed? I believe it was in the ninth. Not from a good angle. Floyd appeared to be legit hurt from it. Again, it very much well, might be true that I've only ever seen it from that one angle, which I couldn't tell. As a proponent of maintaining the structural integrity of MMA, thoughts on idea of Connor versus Nate and not interim champ from 216? Just feels like. It just feels like if that that my fight might be necessary to secure his return. Um, I think the overall demand for it is extraordinary. And between the two, how do you say no to it? Uh, look, would I rather see him fight the winner of the interim fight or Habib? Yeah, I mean, of course, of course. Who 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 wouldn't? We've seen the DS fight twice. Do we need to see the third time? But. There are these, because the sad part is, let's say, you know, Ferguson wins, and then let's say, you know, um, Connor loses. Do you want to see Diaz-Ferguson? Maybe, but I don't know, you know. So there are obviously some major risks, but uh, some of these fights, man, they just have this incredible gravitational pull, and this appears to be one of them. Uh, why did you decide to speak more freely on your chats, MMA beat, in terms of cursing? Seems like the real you. I don't know. Sometimes I'm feeling froggy. I just want to leave.